Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is Duke University historian Laurent Dubois. We are discussing his book, Soccer Empire, The World Cup and the Future of France, published by the University of California Press in 2011. Do you remember where you were on the night of July 9th, 2006? Just as people can remember exactly the moment when they first heard news of a catastrophic event or the death of a major celebrity, so can many sports fans recall where they were and how they responded when they first saw Zinedine Zidane headbutt Marco Materazzi in the final match of the 2006 World Cup. For supporters of the French national team, like Laurent Dubois, Zidane's angry response to the Italian defender's taunts brought approval, then regret, then confusion. Why did Zidane do it? Why did he finish his career and dash the French team's chances with such a deliberate and seemingly selfish act? These questions set Laurent to work. The product of his search for answers is a rich work of contemporary history that looks at the mixing of sport, politics, and social change. For fans of European football, Soccer Empire is a must-read. For those who are not, the book offers a compelling case as to why soccer matters when we look at European culture and society. As Laurent points out at the start of the interview, historians of our generation learn nothing of sport in our studies. The next time I teach a course on modern Europe, my students will be reading Soccer Empire. Laurent and I had a lively conversation with plenty of laughs, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. To start, I asked him to recount the story of where he was on the night of July 9th, 2006. Well, I was in Paris that evening, and I had actually flown to Paris expressly to be there um, after France's kind of unexpected run uh, in, through, the, through the World Cup into the final. Um, and I had, uh, in some ways, you know, I had, I had always regretted not being in France in 1998. I was not there when they won the World Cup. And so I thought, well, this time, if they, if they win the World Cup, I'm going to be in Paris. Um, and I also just had gotten so uh, enraptured with the, the, the kind of what was going on that I just wanted to be amongst, um, amongst peers, let's say. I'd been watching from East Lansing, Michigan, which uh, is not a soccer-watching capital, although there was, of course, a, a diehard group of fans there um, who were watching the games. Um, so I was there to kind of, you know, experience it, whatever would happen. And, and uh, in some ways that, that, I mean, at the time I went, I was not planning on writing a book about soccer, but it's, it's kind of the experience of that night and the next days that um, kind of convinced me to write the book uh, Soccer Empire. Okay, well, let's, let's turn to that. And I'll ask first, what was your, what was your immediate reaction to Zidane's headbutt? <laughs> it's interesting because I, I was in a bar in sort of the north of Paris with friends watching and, um, you know, of course, as, as I talk, to talk about in the book, when you go back to it, you know, people didn't see it the first time. Yeah, yeah. It, what, what you saw was that the game just suddenly stopped 
and there was kind of mayhem and people running around and you know so everybody was just kind of like what's going on it took a long time for people to figure out what happened and then when they finally showed the replay of the headbutt i do remember vividly how a number of a number of guys in the bar kind of cheered you know <laughs> we're like we're like yes you know what a nice headbutt right? and then of course re- quickly realized that he was getting a red card and you know the kind of and i remember then a kind of just a sort of shock and silence you know that that kind of went through my soul you know and through, and through others um and then you know the the whole game had been a a bit kind of nightmarish in a way too, because, you know, there had been the early lead and then the Italians and, and there was this kind of sense of this kind of endless, right. Endless kind of uh, being suspended in time. Um, and the dread, I mean, I think a lot of us then started feeling this, this feeling of dread, like, yes, this is going to go to penalty kicks and we are going to lose, you know, <laughs> it was this kind of, um, and there was such a kind of disappoint, you know, kind of exhaustion and rage at the end of the game. Um, and the feeling in the streets that night was just kind of amazing, this kind of dis, you know, disarray. Um, and as I tell and talk about in the book, there had been this kind of, uh, you know, because Sarkozy, you know, Sarkozy had in some ways um, kind of uh, encouraged this, but there had been this increasing worry that, you know, the game would somehow incite violence. And they had, they had not, they didn't have these large screens like they had had in earlier tournaments because of the worry of violence. And, um, you know, there was this kind of some kind of palpable tension. But then what was fascinating is that in some ways that that the kind of headbutt almost like released all of that. And instead, there was just this kind of disarray, yeah. um, except for Italians. Of course, there were a lot of Italians in Paris who were boldly you know, celebrating and getting yelled at by French people. And, um, <laughs> so, uh, so the whole thing was kind of surreal. And I, I, I you know, I, I went sort of home with some friends and then I walked around for many hours, just like around Paris, kind of taking in that that odd feeling. Um And then, you know, what was so interesting was that the next morning you kind of got up and it was like everybody woke up and had to figure out what to think about the headbutt, you know. Mm -hmm. And everywhere you went, everybody was discussing it, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually went to the archives that day briefly because they were doing research for another book. And um, but everywhere you went, people were discussing and and, and kind of finding, you know, processing like a massive national therapy session. Um, and that was incredibly fascinating and actually much more vivifying than the, the night before, where suddenly there was almost this kind of palpable excitement that, um, you know, the, the World Cup had been lost, sure, but now we suddenly had this incredibly, like, this incredible thing to discuss. And, of course, French people love to argue and discuss things, you know, so and process and analyze things to death. So um, in, a, in its odd way, it was this kind of strange gift that Zidane had offered, you know, as his last parting. parting. And so the me, you know, and it was so interesting, too, because the front page of L'Equipe, um, that day, which everybody read, was this really, you know, very critical piece I quoted in the book about Zidane, sort of how could you do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first tenor. And it was almost like then you could sort of see a backlash to that almost just in talking to people, people saying, wait a minute, you know, who are you to talk to Zidane like that and all this stuff and, and the kind of evolution of alternative readings kind of taking you know, place. Um, and I, you know, what I later realized is that was going on kind of all over the world. Yes, know? yes, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was watching the match. So I watched yeah. the match on the other side of Europe. I was in uh, the Czech Republic watching it on TV. And I asked yeah. for your immediate reaction because I remember just uh, when that moment happens. And I, I'm trying to think of a moment like it in sports where mm-hmm. there is just wave after wave, you know, overlapping of all these different immediate reactions. And, you know, you express some of that in, in the response in the, in the bar and what you had afterwards. And, and I was rooting for France. I do not have the investment in the French national team that you do, but, Mm -hmm. uh, it was this, this, uh, emotional moment such that you don't typically encounter in, in sports. Yeah. 
Yeah, I sometimes. I mean, it seems to me that on some level, the the only comparative moment, in some ways, is the is the hand of God, the Maradona's hand mm-hmm. of God. You know, and because I, I do think it's interesting that in some ways the most memorable moments to me in soccer are moments of kind of transgression or where the game kind of breaks down or breaks mm-hmm. open in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, so that's why those two moments, of course, the hand of God happened in a totally different context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the kind of immediate media, you know, you didn't have the ability to have the kind of global conversation about it, that, you know, it, it would, it would take in some ways some time to percolate and to become a legendary moment. Yeah. Um, and even of course, at the moment, people didn't really know, you know, there was confusion among, uh, exactly what had happened and so forth. Um, so it, it, it strikes me as a pretty unique incident. You know, I mean, I compare it, you know, at a moment, there's a moment in the book where I kind of not, I could compare it not in terms of content, but in terms of the, the sort of buzz around it to, you know, the 1968 uh, Black Power Fest or something, yeah. you know, some sort of thing that, that is of the sport, but then also breaks it down in some way. Um, yeah. And, and, but that too, of course, that, ha- that took time to become a legendary image. And the thing about the Zidane head book is because it happened in 2006, it happened in a moment of social media and, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it was, as I say in the book, it was the, you know, this was the, the largest of the largest audience for any event in the history of the world, right? Yeah. Basically, it was watching, watching the World Cup. So it was this kind of incredible global theater that, you know, that, again, you wouldn't have even had 10 or 20 years ago for soccer. So um, that's kind of pivotal as well. Yeah. And you can't interpret Maradona's intentions with the hand of God. It was just right. a, it was, yeah. uh, a reflexive action. Whereas Almost. with Zidane walking away, walking back, Right. Know, that's where yeah, all of the writing is poured into yeah. those those steps and what was yeah. he thinking yeah yeah and be, and and Zidane, i mean both of them are obviously fascinating characters but there's a way in which like maradona's hand of god sort of fits maradona yeah. <laughs> in a way or you know became a, a defining you know like in the way that he kind of later said like yeah sure well you know that's how um whereas zidane you know was at once once it kind of fit his personality, but in, in some ways so much had been projected on him that went in the other. I mean, he fit his personality in the sense that he, he frequently, you know, gotten problems on the field. Like he'd gotten lots of red cards. He'd headbutted people before. So if you really knew Zidane, it wasn't like completely surprising. Um, he's just one of those players who sometimes, you know, and, and of course, defensive players know that that's one way to get at Zidane if you can't get him other ways. Um, but you know, at the same time, it was at the same time such, and of course, it was also at, at a moment of such kind of apotheosis. I mean, Maradona's hand of God wasn't his last game. You know, like this was literally everyone who saw it knew that that was like the last thing Zidane would ever do on a soccer field. Like that was it that he had announced. You know, that this was, and so, and you add to it the kind of surrealness of you know, in France all summer they there, there's this film, the Zidane, a 21st century portrait had been playing, you know, in cineplexes. It's a this experimental film um, that kind of had, had, in a sense, defined the image of Zidane in some ways. But the um, that that film also ends with him getting a red card, you know. It's a, it's a film of a match in which he, which oh. he played with Real Madrid. And at the end of it, he also gets a red card. And it was this kind of weird sort of way in which it was like his story kept ending the same way. He doesn't get it for a headbutt. He gets it for some other reason. But um, so that was also an odd thing. So we should probably talk about the book, oh. uh, and uh, but the event Zidane's headbutt. This was this was the spark for your book, correct? Mm-hmm. So what were yeah. you hoping? What, as you started the research, what were you hoping to to find out? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, in a sense, the whole I, I think that it's it's fair to say the whole book is essentially about the headbutt on on some level. But the idea, the, the sort of the, the ultimate result of the book was sort of me trying to suggest that in order to unpack that moment. In a, in a weird sort of way, you had to tell the whole history of, you know, 20th century French football, Algeria, the crypt. You had to tell this bigger story to unpack 
what that moment meant, not necessarily for Zidane, because, I mean, Zidane's intentions are still somewhat inscrutable, but for all of those who watched it in France and beyond, you know, why that moment kind of became so crucial. Um, so the book actually started as just an essay about the headbutt. Um, I wrote a kind of short piece that I, you know, presented a couple of workshops just about, like, this headbutt and then what it what the reaction was in France and how. Um, and I originally really thought that the book would be basically about how the French football team had become what I would argue is kind of the major site in France or, or the like the largest public site in France through which issues of race and immigration are kind of processed, discussed, debated. Um, so I just kind of wanted to make that point about the present. And when I went into it, I did not know most of what I wrote about, about the history of football. I mean, this is something that, as you know, in European history, it's not I mean, sport is not integrated into our normal training in European history. It was not something there. There weren't books about it, you know, in, at this level of detail I could go to. There were some books, obviously, a lot of journalistic accounts and a few academic articles. And um, But I, I kind of learned about um, the history of sport in the Caribbean. I mean, I had had, had echoes of that from just being there. Um, and I learned about the Algerian stuff that I didn't know about. And, and so it was kind of just a discovery for me. And part of the shock for me was partly realizing like how little of this I had ever known before and wondering why that was. And so, so there's a partly a polemical side of the book, which is to sort of say, look, this is kind of crazy that we don't tell this history as a kind of core part of 20th century European history, given what a mass phenomenon it is and how, you know, how central it has been to so many different events. So, um, you know, so I joined, you know, other colleagues who work on soccer in some ways and just sort of trying to make the partly just trying to demonstrate through the book why we need to pay attention to, to soccer, whether you care about it or not as a fan, you know, which is, um, I mean, I, I made the decision to make clear at the beginning of the book that I am a fan and I felt, you know, I was invested in this. Um, but I also hope that the book does not require you to, to care one iota about football. But like if you just care about contemporary Europe or France, hopefully the book will still be of interest, you know, um, so – yeah, and that's one thing I appreciate is that you laid out uh, right at the beginning. You tell this story of, of going to Paris for, for the end of the World Cup, and, and you make clear your love for the French football team. But one thing you write that's, that's interesting at the start of the book is that you say, in rooting for the French national team, you're not rooting for the French nation. And, and you mm-hmm. write, I'm rooting for something bigger than that. So mm-hmm. can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, and I think that is something shared with a, a lot of, you know, say American fans of the French team, of which there's a certain number or, or people who kind of, you know, like many people watch a World Cup and get converted, right? I mean, they don't, you don't necessarily start out with, you might start out with a national team and then maybe your national team gets eliminated and then you, it's not like you stop being engaged in the World Cup, right? You, um, and the French team, as I tell, you know, explain in the book is, is pretty unique. Um, for this very, very long history of of kind of multi-ethnic players, right? This kind of diversity of players. And so, um, especially in the 1998 moment, that team, you know, came to symbolize some kind of possibility, you know, not not necessarily reality, but a possibility of a different kind of Europe, one in which the kind of colonial histories and immigrant histories would somehow be accepted, you know, would be kind of accepted as a part of the national story. Um, And so... I mean, for me, I don't even go into this book, into this that much in the book, but I was finishing my dissertation at Michigan in 1998. And my dissertation is a, was about the French Revolution and, the, you know, the kind of ways in which the Caribbean transformed French ideas of universalism. Um, and there was this very vivid way for me in which, like, 
I was I was making this 600 page you know argument in my dissertation, and then I watched the 1998 World Cup, and I was like, oh well, basically Turam is like making the same point, but much more vividly, you know. Um, and so from that day on, you know, Turam kind of because of the kind of Caribbean, you know, the way in which Guadeloupe in in my dissertation, I try to put Guadeloupe at the center of French history, mm-hmm. and he put Guadeloupe at the center of French history in in his game in his playing. Um, and so that's there's a connection there. And it's not that, you know, I have like a, a big problem with the French nation, but the point is that it's 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 not really that much of a nationalist response, like um, especially because most of my actual academic work is about, you know, in some ways critiquing and, and some of the ways in which French nationalism has been created in exclusivist terms and, mm-hmm. and so forth. So um, and any French nation that I could imagine would be a fundamentally kind of global space, you know, that that is about the inheritance of 500 years of empire. And I mean, I teach a course here at Duke with Achille Mbembe. I'm teaching it starting in a few weeks um, called Global France. And that's essentially, you know, our course is essentially about the space that includes Africa and France and the Caribbean and other parts of the world. And um, which is, you know, not a national space and no longer exactly an imperial space, but still a space of, of connections in, in which football kind of plays a role, a defining role of, of identification. So, mm-hmm. Well, following up on something that, that you just said briefly, um, the, the French national team has really been a multi-ethnic team throughout the, mm-hmm. the 20th century. This is not a, a 1998 or a recent phenomenon. So can you, can you talk about that, of, of this mm-hmm. uh, character of the team going back into, into the 20s and 30s? Mm-hmm. And that, that for me was a discovery because the, the way that people talked about the 1998 team was as kind of a, a new thing, you know, the, the, like now suddenly the, the team represents the diversity of France. And then I started looking into it. And of course, you know, first the 1980s with Platini, you had Tigana and Trezor and, you know, you had the same kind of Caribbean and African presence. Um, but then going back and back, you know, you realize that basically in the 30s, there was Larbi Ben Barak, there was Raoul Diane. Um, there were all players essentially from the very moment that there was a, a, a French national team playing an international competition. There was always at least a f- one or two players, you know, either Algerian or, or West African um, or sometimes Moroccan as in, in, in Barak. Um, so and their presence was, you know, interestingly not super problematic, you know, so like it wasn't it wasn't as if, you know, Ben Barak was on the team and there was a wave of complaints about it. I mean, there were occasional racist comments, but there was as much. Um, of the kind of 1998 thing where people would sort of celebrate, you know, it, it, certainly in a kind of colonial way, right, the, the presence of these of these these people on the team. Um, but a person like Ben Bahik is interesting because he was incredibly successful as a professional. You know, he had a transfer to, to Spain. I quote a, a journalistic article where when he was transferred to Spain, someone said, like, look, sell the Eiffel Tower, sell the Arc de Triomphe, don't sell this guy. He's the national treasure, you know. So you have these kind of, um, you know, already this phenomenon of people who, you know, who, who this guy grew up, you know, poor on the margins of a French colony and who becomes a kind of superstar um, in, in the 30s and 40s. And, and so that's kind of fascinating as well. Um, and that they were on the national team. They weren't just in the professional teams. And it's especially fascinating when you compare it to other European countries, right, where you have n- no such phenomenon until much, much later. So the classic case, the English team, it's the first black players in the late 1970s. Now, they have the same colonial his- types, you know, so parallel colonial history, similar patterns of immigration and nevertheless um it's a totally different story in england and it's been a, a different story in germany of course until recently holland um you know there's eusebio in portugal who's a kind of other example um and so you do have other uh, other examples in europe but but nowhere in europe um has it been as as diverse consistently as in france um and it's interesting it's particularly interesting now you know so 
when I, I wrote the summer about Mario Balotelli, for instance, I mean, you know, you, this is essentially the first time that there's been a black, a, a prominent black player on the Italian team. There have been a few before. Um, and that's pretty startling, right? It's 2012, right? And so and you, in France, you, you can go back to the 1920s, 1930s. So um, that's it seemed to me something worth explaining. And I don't know that there's an easy explanation. It's all kinds of different factors in that. But it's certainly something to take note of, I think. Mm-hmm. So in addition to presenting the history of, of soccer in France, you also discuss the history of, of soccer in the colonial territories. And, and I want to ask you about the two places that you focus on the book. So, so first, can you give us a sketch of, of football in the French islands of the Caribbean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was part of, you know, I wanted to, again, the book is kind of woven around Turam and Zidane, and, and, and each of them come from a particular context, right? Mm-hmm. Turam from Guadeloupe and Zidane, um, not born in Algeria, born in Marseille, but out of an Algerian experience. And um, so I wanted to understand what their, their, you know, the histories of football in those regions were. And in particular, because it's kind of an interesting, you know, it's an interesting case in the broader thing that people study about the diffusion of sports, right? And there's a long running debate whether the kind of diffusion of sport and empire was in a sense, a successful Western colonization of mentalities, right, which, which is kind of what the colonizers thought it was. You know, this was the perfect way to root certain kinds of Western ideologies and, and embody them in the colonized. Um, or alternatively, is it a kind of an excellent site where people kind of appropriated sports and used them to their own ends, right? And, it, it, and, and so what I wanted to tell was the story of different ways that played out in different colonial contexts. The Caribbean context... Um, struck me because it's a really fast, you know, it's one of these places where soccer takes root in the late 19th century and becomes a really, really popular sport, um, becomes very, very rooted. It was, it was a kind of um, something that kind of people identified according to, people were very proud of, you know, the achievements of their athletes. And that was partly a way of just explaining this kind of startling thing, which is that in, in the, in the uh, 2006 World Cup team, you had nine of the 23 players were from the French Antilles, right, or, or children of, of immigrants from the French Antilles, which, given that it's about 1 60th of the population, is a pretty startling, you know, representation. So I wanted to kind of explain that tradition. Um, this, so part of the book talks about that. And then in Algeria, of course, you have this really interesting political history of, of football clubs being a site for kind of, essentially for kind of nationalist activism from the 20s on, and, and kind of the football club being in essence, one of the first places where the colors of national Algeria get kind of paraded and presented. So the rise of these what are called Muslim football clubs, um, who you know whose matches against teams of European settlers regularly become a kind of you know an occasion for people to, to kind of articulate political ideas. Um, and then the story during the Algerian Revolution that I tell of of a number of very high high level professional players of Algerian background in France, some of them on the World Cup team, basically, you know, defecting, leaving France, disappearing from France and creating this national Algerian team as a representative of a nation in the making um, and and touring the world as a kind of representation of Algeria. And that, that whole story to me was very compelling. And it's crucial background to then understanding, you know, both what the French and the Algerian teams mean in France and then the kinds of things that people were projecting onto Zidane and the sort, the sort of reasons why Zidane um, came to symbolize so many different things for so many different people was partly precisely because there had been this moment in which football was directly politicized as a, as a kind of site of conflict. So as you mentioned, um, you focus in the book on these two characters, I guess we could say, uh, Lillian Toram and, and Zidane. And after looking at the background in the Antilles and in Algeria, uh, I want to ask you if you can give just something of a, a sketch introduction to uh, to both of them. And I'll ask you first to introduce Toram. 
Mm-hmm. So Turam is a is a is a guy who grows up in a very small town in in Guadalupe, kind of a fishing town. Um, his mother, he grows up. His father is not in the home. His mother works in the cane fields and works as a domestic. Um, she worked in the cane fields while she was pregnant with him. And there was a sort of joke. There's actually I found his baby picture in in France Antilles because he was I think he was like the first baby born in you know 1972. So he got his picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the joke was that he was this tiny little baby. You know. Partly because of the conditions, probably of her pregnancy. But um, so he grows up there. His mother becomes part of this vast, big movement of of people from Martinique and Guadeloupe moving to France under a state-sponsored program. Um, well, she doesn't move under the state-sponsored program, but there's a state-sponsored program that's kind of in urging people to migrate. She moves independently. She goes to France for a year without them. Kind of finds a place to live, and then brings Chiram and, and the family over. And, they, and he grows up in a kind of project um, in near Fontainebleau outside of Paris. I actually went and visited the place. And it turns out to have been a pretty nice place to grow up in part because, like, literally their door was right near this huge park, this forest. And so Turam, I love this about him. He writes a later wrote an autobiography. And the way he describes growing up in the projects in the banlieue, you know, essentially a kind of banlieue south of Paris is as a kind of magical place. Like he doesn't. It's not a victim, victimized account. I mean, he describes the experience of going out of that neighborhood and, and confronting racism because of where he was from. But he also describes this kind of great world in which people from China and Pakistan and the Caribbean and Congo were growing up together, playing soccer together, um, and soccer as a kind of site of, of sociability. Um, so he describes, in a sense, this kind of cosmopolitan space, that, as the, you know, which is very different from the general image that one has of, of what the banlieue is, of course. Um, he right, rather quickly becomes, you know, a talented player. He gets um, noticed playing on a youth team, and then he plays on a local youth team. He goes into a, a sport kind of track at a local high school that actually Claude Makalele is also in. Um, and at a very young age, ends up getting recruited by Arsene Wenger um, to play at Monaco. And um, that's kind of the beginning. Wenger is a kind of mentor to him, um, others as well. And that's the beginning of a pretty a remarkable career. I mean, one key moment, he gets injured early on and after his injury, uh, well, even before afterwards, they kind of encourage him to, to play a d- defensive role rather than an attacking role, which he'd been playing. Um, and that turned out to be, you know, really his, his incredible <laughs> gift. And he, he became one of the great defenders, you know, of, of his generation playing in, in Italy and um, at, you know, a certain point, the highest transfer fees for a defender up until that moment, going to Juventus and and then ends his career um, actually with a brief stint at Barcelona where he, he didn't actually play that much. But when I, I first met him actually was when he was uh, playing at Barcelona in in, uh, in 06, in the fall of 06 when I first met him. And um, he's somebody that you know I met and interviewed in 06. We've since brought him to Duke for a week residency and I see him regularly when we go to Paris and just kind of an extraordinary person. I mean, this is probably the only footballer that I, I can imagine who, who, I mean, not only did he create a kind of foundation for anti-racist education, which has a whole kind of basically a course, a syllabus where he has like leading scholars talking about race as a social construction and so forth. He also curated a major exhibit at the Quai Branly um, on the history of, of kind of racial re- representations for the last 500 years. And, and when I say he curated, like, you know, he wrote the text and he really kind of, you know, intellectually kind of uh, shaped that exhibit. Um, so it's pretty, he's kind of an extraordinary figure. Um, and, you know, it was always teased uh, for, for being a kind of intellectual, you know, player. Um, but also stands out because he was very political. Um, and so, you know, a little bit in 1998, he was kind of, um, I describe in the book the way that actually the French team was like this little seminar in Atlantic history because Bernard Lama, 
um, other Caribbean players. And then uh, Karembu, who is from New Caledonia, talked a lot about the kind of history of colonialism and, and you know, their relationship to France in, in, like, in the team, actually. Um, so he was kind of politicized and, and got a historical sense from that. Um, and then especially by 2005, 2006, becomes a very vocal critic of Sarkozy. Um, you know, this is bef- before um, at, at when he's interior minister and a kind of vocal critic of the way he's talking about the, the banlieue. Um, and quite openly, you know, also departs from people like Jerry Henry and others who take stands against racism in football by consistently basically saying, you know, racism in football is just a reflection of racism in society. And when you have racist politicians, you know, and racist parties, like that's the real problem. You know, it's not just, you know, you're not going to solve the problem in the stadium until you solve the problem in society. And even, you know, it has this kind of lovely way of saying, look, you know, when people are racist in the stadium, it's just because they haven't had, you know, they haven't been educated otherwise. It's almost not their fault. You know, I mean, he's not that he's not critical of them, but the point is not to kind of point a finger at one person, but to point at the structural situation. So um, that's, you know, Turam is, is definitely a kind of, you know, I, I, I have a lot of, of respect for him. It comes through in the book, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one person serves it. This is basically a love letter to Turam, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably true. Although Zidane... Um, well, yeah, let's turn to Zidane. And, and one, one sentence you have in the book is, who is Zidane? And, right. and I'll ask you, have you come any closer to answering that question because he's he's uh, really a mercurial character yeah it's fascinating yeah i was just reading the latest uh, french gq magazine has this thing about zidane at 40 you know mm-hmm. and it's kind of interesting this kind of piece about um who is he as a man and all this stuff but um you know zidane is a very different he grows up in uh also in the projects north of marseille um from an algerian family I tell the story of his father, who was part of this generation of migrants who, who migrated to France in the 50s before Algerian independence, remained in France throughout the, the Algerian war. And then, you know, in an interesting way, like he's he, he was never not French, actually. His father was, you know, either a colonial subject of Algeria. And then after the war, he becomes an immigrant because he, he retains his Algerian citizenship, but remains in France. And so Zidane is born um, in Marseille, grows up, just a total passion for soccer from the very beginning, you know, kind of that's all he ever wanted to do and um, grew up playing in this concrete plaza, like where his parents could see what was going on, make sure he wasn't getting into trouble. Um, And he goes very early at the age of 13 to a a local training academy, you know, he gets picked out. um, And this is, you know, so there his story intersects with part of the story I tell in the book, which is about French training academies in, in soccer, which are, you know, state supported and are very important part of, of the structure. Um, and from there, again, as a teenager, you know, gets a, goes into a kind of professional career, a uh, quite brilliant one. Um, and, you know, is, is always described early on as a bit of a mercurial player. You know, he's got incidents, you know, there are incidents on, on the field occasionally, but as this kind of brilliant kind of, um, master of of the terrain of the the space of of the field and um you know there's something electrifying about watching him play the way that he would with ease kind of command the space um you know and obviously he was a scorer of of goals at pivotal moments he scored the two goals that defeated you know brazil or two of the goals that defeated brazil in 1998 uh funnily enough when he went to the training academy he 
he hated he did what he apparently did what I do whenever the ball comes towards my head in a soccer match, which is duck, you know, <laughs> except he would do it so he could catch it with his foot, you know. And, and basically he said, you know, where we grew up, like heading the ball wasn't it just wasn't very, you know, it wasn't considered anything special. Like, you know, the cool thing to do was do something with your feet. Um, so they sort of said, I think you need to work on heading the ball, you know, and, and uh, you know, both the, the both the goals he scored against Brazil were headers. So uh, he had t- taken that to heart. Um, but he, you know, he comes off in the French media as a, He's the kind of antithesis of the sort of Beckham, you know, kind of footballer. You know, he's the family man. He met, uh, you know, he met his wife when they were both like she was in a tr- uh, dance David training. Beckham's a family man. What I are you know, saying? But, <laughs> but the kind of, you know, the idea of the sort of this is like this quiet kind of private mm-hmm. family man who's not really. I mean, of course, he does his endorsements and that kind of stuff. But um, he has this reputation, especially compared to some other French footballers, you know, who have gotten into various woes um, with this as the kind of solid, you know, guy who's um, uh, and he has two sons, you know, named after footballers. Enzo is one of, one of them. Um, and uh, but, you know, what happened with him was, of course, he especially starting in 1996, but really in 1998, he became, you know, the symbol of France and Algeria kind of coming together, being together. You know, what did it mean? Um, so as a kind of member of this sort of generation of, of, of you know, children of Algerian migrants who became a fixation of the far right and a fixation of the media um, in the 1980s and 1990s. How are these people integrating? What was the role of Islam in France? All these questions that are still, of course, burning questions in France. Um, you know, because he became the national hero as and basically the icon of the French national team, it was a way of like imagining that actually France and Algeria could, you know, finally combine in some way. Um, he you know, he's often uh, people. When I went into it, a lot of people said, "Oh, Zidane never really talks about politics." And then you realize that actually, at various moments, he said some pretty powerful stuff about both Algeria and France, and being of both places, and understanding, you know, the common, you know, not having to choose, but being sort of integrating the two. And he's he has said at various points in interviews and some pretty powerful stuff. So I actually think of him as a pretty uh, a remarkable thinker too, um, not as voluble and not as openly political as Chiram. And he, of course, he has never taken the kinds of stances that Chiram is, you know, openly criticizing. He did kind of speak out against Le Pen at one point during, you know, an election along with most of the team. Um, but I also, but that doesn't, of course, I think that the key is to think of him as a political figure, maybe on another level, you know, in, in this kind of very complicated terrain of, of cultural politics in France around immigration. Yeah, and as I was reading it, and I want to ask you this, is why didn't there are these moments where Zidane does speak mm-hmm. in, in terms right. of about political questions. And it's clear, and I think you do say this in the book, he's he's a smart guy. So he's not, uh, you know, referring back to past footballers we've mentioned, he's not an unintelligent guy mm-hmm. who all he knows is, is football. He does have smarts. Um, why doesn't he engage with broader issues you know because you, there's this sense throughout the book that people want Zidane. Yeah, they, people don't say about Taram Taram for president they say Zidane right. for president so there's this expectation we right. want to hear from you yeah, yeah why doesn't he do you think um it's interesting I mean this has come up in a slightly different way in that he was you know one of the possible candidates for the coach of the national team and people have often not thought of Zidane as a as a coach really you know although he might be a quite impressive one but um you know I mean, part of it, I think, does go back to his his family background. His, you know, he talks about his father, and there was a kind of way in which you know they grew up as Algerians in Marseille at a time with a lot of tension and complexity. And it sounds like you know part of the ethos was just like keep your head down, you know, like don't 
don't don't don't talk too much. Don't get into too much trouble. Like okay. there's a kind of sense that um, the best way through is is often just to to be a little silent and a little private. You know um, that you know sort of going out and 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 so I think he's taken that to heart. I think part of it's probably just honestly personality. Like he's a little shy. Apparently he doesn't really like you know speaking in public. You know whereas Turam be on TV, you know, no problem. I mean, Zidane can speak. It's not like he doesn't, but it's not his favorite thing, you know. And um, he seems to have always just wanted to kind of keep some privacy. But I, I also think that, um, and I try to point this out at a certain point in the book, you know, when people wanted like Zidane to say something about the France-Algeria game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's as if like there is something that could be said that would resolve, you know, yeah. the yeah. fundamental deep historical, you know, issues between France and Algeria. I mean, like, what is he supposed to say? You know, like, he's already said by being there, by being a symbol, by being on the pitch, you know, he's saying something, which is like, France is Algeria and Algeria is France, and that's not going to change. And, you know, so he's made a pretty powerful statement just by being there and by being who he was, you know, whether he could add to that, you know, a certain amount of verbiage, you know, of course, maybe he could say we need to but it's also interesting to imagine that perhaps words would have in some ways decreased his his symbolic power, you know. I mean, part of his symbolic power was that everybody was projecting onto Zidane all kinds of things. And that that's why the headbutt mm-hmm. became such a powerful thing because he didn't ever really explain it exactly. He explained it in so many different ways. You know, he kind of said, like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, but I kind of had to do it. But I, I probably wouldn't do it again. But on the other hand, you know, like, and, and the way that he talks about it is – is so fascinating because it leaves open so many interpretations still. Um, And the gesture itself, you know, has this sort of totally powerful universal valence. Like, you know, I think I try to say this in the book, which is this kind of way in which um, so many people saw that and probably thought like, how many, how many times have I won? You know, like that's like the ultimate form of like, I'm insulted and I respond, you know, this kind of immediate, you know, and there was a way in which even those guys who kind of cheered him, the thing, there was a kind of immediate sense, I think, for some people that's like, I know exactly why he did that. And I'm glad he did it. And he kind of did it for all of us, you know, even then afterwards, people saying, oh, why did he do that? What a horrible thing. Um, but this idea also that at the very moment of a kind of prof- of an apotheosis, he would choose to do this, like, you know, kind of stupid and intensely personal thing that had nothing to do with yeah. like the French national team. With any, it was like this totally on one level, completely selfish act. Right. Cause of course it, it like it in terms of being on the team and representing France, it was a complete reversal of doing the right thing. And at the same time, kind of an oddly compelling act precisely because it was almost like he was saying like, you know what? I mean, it's fine. It's the world cup, but this guy just insulted my mother. You know, yeah. And I, I can't. I just can't deal with that. I can't handle that right now. So I got to respond. This kind of oddly humane moment. So I think that he remains so fascinating because of the combination of this almost like idol status, and then this like hyper humane side to him that feels very, you know, very, you know, almost familiar. Like it's the kind of thing people do. You know, sometimes they they get pissed off and they you know and they they lash out and then they afterwards they kind of apologize. But yeah. um, so. And, and I can't remember if it was your statement or someone you were quoting in the book uh, that this was this was the most fitting way for Zidane to finish his career. You know, so yes, the storybook ending would have been Zidane leading France in you know scoring the scoring the goal in penalty kicks to defeat the Italians. He goes out as uh, as two time world champion, but 
No, this is actually the the more appropriate ending that that yeah. he's he sent off and as you talk about in the book and I remember this he walks past the World Cup the trophy right. and looks down and and just you know he's plows like, straight ahead yeah right right yeah there's this moment I always thought this moment where he's like you know like forget this you know like there's a moment if if you play pickup soccer there's always a moment where someone's like you know what this is a, I hate this game you know like, you guys are a bunch of jerks I'm leaving you know it's, it's kind of like that but uh, and. and I think that, yeah, there's a way that it was oddly fitting. And, you know, it was kind of, you know, there were, what I love is in some ways because, I mean, had they not won and had he not won the World Cup for France in 1998, you might say it was even more of a shame, you know. Mm-hmm. But for people who said like, oh, it's so unfortunate because if he'd won the world, you know, it kind of, there was a certain certain line afterwards like, oh, well, this is just going to, you know, play into the hands of the racists who will say like, oh, look, he's, you know, he's an Algerian, he can't control himself, whatever, you know, and certainly there was tons of racist, you know, response to it, right? This is typical, of course, he's just like all those others, you know, he, he can't really ultimately come through, etc. Um, but at the same time, of course, he had won the World Cup for France in 1998. And if there was an opportunity for France to say, like, thank you for winning the World Cup, we are no longer going to be racists or, you know, whatever, like that, that had passed already, right? And it, it had been clear that despite that, uh, very quickly, you know, the far right was on the rise. Sarkozy is, is, is you know, is stigmatizing the, you know, the very populations that are linked to, to Zidane's, you know, history and so forth. So, um, I mean, there is an interesting way in which the politics of the headbutt and the 1998 win taken together are like two sides of what do you do when you're feeling when you're kind of being consistently marginalized by a society right um and and i think the reason the headbutt seems so powerful to people was because it was like this other response which was like well one response is is people criticize us and say we're not french so we're going to prove that we're french by being the most french of anybody right it's like who's more french than the team that wins the world cup for france right they're, they're even more french than the politicians in some ways right um and then on the other hand, saying, you know, like, well, you know, for so long we haven't been French. And maybe sometimes, you know, if we get an insult, the, the only way to respond is directly to that insult without worrying about how, you know, what people are going to say about it. So it's, I mean, all of this is obviously projection. And I'm not saying that all of this was in Zidane's mind. Um, but the point about the moment is that it allowed for people to project onto it, like their sense of what the way it, what, I mean, I try to say this in the book, the kind of universal thing, which is what do you do in the face of an insult? You know, mm-hmm. do you ignore, you know, what is the re- proper response to an insult? Um, and that is in a sense of a very universal human problem. Right. Um, and so the fact that the gesture spoke to that is what makes it um, so powerful. And, you know, the thing is, in, the reason it had a kind of global valence, and I think in every place it meant something a little different, you know, um, but the fact that it could travel so easily and it's the kind of, you know, again, it's alongside like something like 9-11 or something by one of these images that you, you could probably go almost anywhere in the world and say like, oh, remember when, Z-, you know, you could probably have a conversation about that. Maybe not with everybody in the world, but almost any place in the world you could have, you could find someone who not would Not a lot to. of people in Michigan or North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. But certainly in New York, you know, like a friend of mine who was in New York sort of said, j- joked like, yeah, suddenly I saw all these Zidane, sh- all these guys kind of wearing these Zidane shirts, you know, like it was this kind of tough thing, you know, like this sort of new <laughs> fashion in Brooklyn and stuff. So. He is, he is, is this line in your book or did I think this while reading it? Zidane was, the, you know, there was this time he was the coolest guy in the world. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is in the book. Actually, well, the New York Times dubbed him. Okay, okay. That was... Planet. Yeah. Just before, that was before the World Cup. But you could, you could imagine that after the headbutt, in a, in a, in a way, he, he even, he, well, so maybe different sectors and in different ways, he was still that. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, I only scratched the surface on, you know, in some ways, I was overwhelmed at how much was out there about 
this headbutt. I mean, and, and some of it has probably just disappeared because it was like on blogs and chat rooms and all this kind of stuff. But it was amazing, like how much, how much was out there. It was un- unbelievable how much you know material, what, writing and thought had, had been produced about. Well, it. let me ask about that because you do cite journalists, intellectuals. Uh, you you quote some of the more ridiculous uh, interpretations. Was there one that, as you were reading it? that you thought, yeah, this makes the most sense that, that you mm-hmm. kind of steered to in, in how you felt about or thought about, uh, the headbutt. Right. right. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there's, there's some, there's some very good interpretations. I mean, on one level, you know, the most, the easiest interpretation, which I've also, which, which is not the one I have in the book is sort of like, Oh, you know, he just got, he got yeah. pissed off and it is nothing like, you know, one interpretation is to render it banal, which is, which, it, which it is in a way like, Oh, you know, whatever soccer players get, you know, the def- a defender who can't keep up with a, with a really good player, you know, does trash talk and hopes that the guy gets a red card. You know, Materazzi was like a king of that, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of banality to it. Um, and on some levels, that's correct, probably. Like on some on the most basic level, like this was on some level, except, you know, you, you just you have to imagine Zidane as having a bit more consciousness than yeah. that, I think, in a way. You know, it's just not. And there is the time of he walked away yeah. and he made he, it, it was such a deliberate action. And, you know, we've seen, you know, you watch, I see games all the time where someone gives like kind of a weak little headbutt because they're mad right at the moment. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not that like this is such a deliberate Mm -hmm. choice. Like you can watch him make the choice. And and then when he makes the choice, the thing about it is he makes the choice and then he does it with such incredible brio. You know, like it's like it's not a kind of, you know, had he had he swung at someone, you know, after they tangled in front of the goal, it would have just been totally banal. But there's something so theatrical about what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, So. Not that he was necessarily thinking about how it looked on TV when he did it, but um, I. So I do think that in a way he's. I think we have to kind of think of Zidane as being, you know, conscious of all the different ways that people were projecting things onto him, um, making an instantaneous decision, which you know he may not have made if he was not angry or whatever, but still kind of making a conscious choice that he was going to do this and that you know he was going to deal with the consequences. Um, I don't think he was doing it because he wanted it to be a symbol of anything necessarily um but there is a way too in which i mean and if you watch the movies again in the 21st century portrait there's this kind of way in which you realize that the emotional burden of being on that pitch and being at the center and so forth you know at some point you you almost i feel like zidane at times just wanted to get rid of that you know like he just wanted to be done with having to be the person who was good right you know and he was sort of basically coaching the 2016 he was ever you know and so there is this kind of almost unburdening quality to it. And and there were people who suggested that too, that, you know, there was a way in which like almost this weird injustice of having been made to be everything for everyone. And, you know, why should someone have to be that? Right. And that kind of, um, so I, I don't know, I think, but I, in some ways I do think it's going to remain a kind of inscrutable, mm-hmm. like the reason it's so powerful is because there is no end potential end to the discussion of what it meant, you know? And I mean, I have, Given, you know, academic talks about many topics, you know, I've sort of argued that universalism comes from the Caribbean. I've argued all kinds of, you know, things that might be potentially controversial. But the thing that gets the most angry questions when I presented it is when I sort of somewhat, I mean, I basically come out in defense of the headbutt in some ways or or arguing for its importance. And there's frequently someone who just can't believe that I'm saying that, you know, (laughs) like I'll say, like, what do you mean? This is, is, you know, a denigration of everything that sport, you know, that that, that sport symbolizes. It's, It's a... if you accept this, then you're accepting. It's like kind of the downfall of civilization, right? If you can, um, 
And and certainly there were people who sort of, that was yeah. the kind of original response from Lee Keep, which is sort of like, this is horrible. You know, what are kids going to do if they think that it's OK to headbutt people? Right. This this kind of uh, anxiety in Le Monde even expressed it. What are the kids in the banlieue going to think if it's OK for Zidane to headbutt people? You know, um, and some people saying, watch out. And next time you run into them, they're just going to headbutt you. And so um, but. Of course, that's also uh, being a little too simplistic about how people watch soccer. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like people know that soccer is a theater. They don't think of it as exactly life, right? I don't. I don't think most fans think that what happens on the pitch is directly translatable into, you know, the moral ethical universe that you would use at your job or something, right? Um, so, I think people are also, you know, better at interpreting and moving back and forth from that to another realm. So. Yeah, thinking of it in those terms, one of, a, a favorite line from the book is that Zidane was no longer a god; he had become a hero. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and that's a quote that yeah that that that, peop- that was I think one and it's true that w- that was one of the better interpretations I think was this kind of sense that like, um, and I mean I mentioned this hilarious interaction I had with this you know French Chanel wearing like poodle walking lady who was like, <laughs> I'm glad Zidane did that. You know they insulted his mother. That's why we love him because he stood up for us, you know. And so you, you you have the sense of people, and especially for people who you know, people for whom soccer is like whatever, you know. Like there are all, all these people that actually entered into their reality in soccer hero, you know, because it's kind of like, well, yeah, you know. Um, I mean, are people just supposed to put up with this stuff? And I, I sometimes cite this as well, you know. Like imagine if you went to a faculty meeting and like a normal thing in a faculty meeting would be like during an argument over a hire for someone to like insult your mother and say they're going to you know screw your sister and like if that was, if that was like how like at your job that that was like accepted, which which is essentially the case in soccer, right? Mm-hmm. People what what Materazzi said was like, well, we do this all the time, mm-hmm. you know, we. So that's part of the game, right? It's just masculinist, you know, ribbing about sex and, you know, is, is what we do, you know? And I can, I can kind of, I love this kind of idea that Zidane is sort of saying like, wait a minute, you know, like, do I really have to be insulted while I'm just working, you know, like while I'm doing my job, it, it, it's, it's fine for this guy to like, you know, so this, this kind of radical utopianism that Zidane had almost, which was sort of saying like, well, it's not really right to be insulted in soccer. And, it's an amazing thing to say because everyone knows that yeah. every soccer match involves people insulting each other's mother, you know, like, and yet for him to then say, I had to do something, you know, it, it's this, it's such an odd and kind of compelling move, I think. So, Which is um, what we teach our kids in, in playing sports that you don't do that. And yet we accept it at, at the highest level. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And I, you know, I think for most soccer fans understand the kind of theatricality of soccer and you understand that it's a kind of unfair game, you know, that there's almost no game in which a referee doesn't somehow make a mistaken call that doesn't, that you can blame. I mean, you can almost always blame a game, right. On a, on a mistaken call. And it's just part of dealing with it, you know, and, and there are cases where your team, you know, fakes, fakes, dives in front of the the goal and gets a penalty kick and you cheer for them because they, die. you know, you don't say like, Oh, I'm outraged that like, I mean, I'm so outraged that my team did this theatrical thing and won the world cup. Like you would never, I mean, most people, you wouldn't like say like, Oh, of course, if the other team did it, you'd be outraged. But um, so I think it's hard to, to play soccer without a kind of a sense of some sort of moral ambiguity. You know, the idea that soccer is like a purely ethical space where, you know, where no lies are, are accepted and so forth. It's just, like fault, like you watch any soccer game and you realize it's false, you know. So it it 
it's I mean, we've had a conversation here once with a guy from the athletics department, you know, in, in, in the Keenan's the Keenan uh, ethics uh, school here or, or program here. Um, and it was interesting because he sort of said, you know, so many people come to us thinking that like putting their kids in soccer or another sport will teach them ethics. And that's essentially wrong. You know, there's not there's no reason sport is going to transmit ethics. It's not fundamentally ethical. I mean, you can learn certain important life lessons, but you are just as likely to maybe you're going to learn very bad life lessons. I mean, you might learn that cheaters win and, you know, and the, the and mistakes, uh, you know, are unfixable. And I mean, there's nothing specific, you know, so that it's this kind of American sense that like and it was one, of course, that, you know, Victorian English people had too. that, you know, you, you learn how to be a proper citizen through sports, you know, I think is. In, in in practical in practical terms is is a nice idea, but it it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit hard to maintain in the face of what sports actually are. So, so at the start of the interview, you talked about how when you began this book, you were unfamiliar with sports history, with with history of soccer, and in the book, not only do you write about the history, you write about specific matches in detail. And so, let me ask you, as a, as a fellow historian, mm-hmm. how how was that? as a writing experience to to write about a match was it was it challenging was it fun it was pretty fun actually because i you know i'd seen most of these matches yeah. and then i found i don't know if this guy's still in business but there was some place where you could buy you know like just dvds of old world cup matches you know recorded somewhere i don't know um and uh and so i rewatched matches i also went back i went to the 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 INA, the Institut National de l'Audiovisuel in Paris, which is like an archive of everything that's been on TV since the 1980s. It's kind of an amazing thing. So you can watch the games with the you know French commentary and what they say afterwards, and I did that. Um, and so I wanted to write those games because, of course, the whole point of the book is about the pivotal way in which you know a moment on the field can become a moment for a nation, and um, you can't do that without telling the games. I mean, I know I had one friend of mine who's a historian said, yeah, the problem with sports history is there's always this moment where they're like, and then so-and-so ran up the field on the – you know, and, uh, and it, I hope that it's not tedious you know, in the book, but, uh, but I think that it's crucial because the only way you can see why a figure becomes you know, what they do off the pitch is what happens on the pitch, that intersection. Um, but so that was a lot of fun. And I, I wanted, I mean, first of all, I felt like I, it was important to the book. It was also fun to do. And I think, you know, for most readers, it's kind of, and you want to somehow give some reflection of the, of the sense of what it is to be in these games, you know, in the way that kind of time is sort of suspended and these little actions, you know, take on kind of mythic significance, you know? And, um, so, and I, you know, I did enjoy going back to that. And when I teach, I teach a course, uh, on soccer and politics here, and it's a lot of fun back and, watch games first of all because the style of soccer has changed you know and you see you you suddenly realize like that what you're used to seeing today is not you know you watching the you know the brazil italy final in 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 mexico or whatever you're you're just a very different kind of of game in certain ways so that's kind of interesting too as a historian to realize that like the actual game has shifted in these palpable ways um which and in thinking about what that means is kind of interesting as well so you've had this successful turn in your career into uh, into soccer history. Uh, you have a blog on uh, politics and soccer, uh, teaching courses on on soccer history. Is your is your next project continuing in this line? Or are you going back to history of the Caribbean? What what are you writing on now? Um, I'm actually writing a history of the banjo. Um, so it's it's both not at all related and kind of related in the sense that it's a it's a similar kind of pretty broad um culture you know history of a kind of cultural form and in this case an instrument um 
that has very much to do with the Caribbean and with, you know, Afro-Atlantic experience. Um, but it's a pretty different kind of book in that sense. So, um, and I, yeah, I, I've, you know, there, occasionally I get ideas about things I want to write about in soccer. And mostly I state that by writing on the blog. Um, I wrote recently about the hijab, the kind of hijab, hijab ban in football and, and about Balotelli this summer. And um, I really love the blog space in a way because it's so immediate, you know, and you can kind of dialogue with people. And um, so for the time being, I think I'll probably keep writing there as opposed to and, and some of those pieces um, end up get have gotten picked up. You know, one will be in a journal in France or, you know, some of them. Sometimes the pieces become the basis for for pieces elsewhere. Um I am really interested in the the French women's team and and also women's basketball and and the kind of gender politics around that and so I, I'd like to sort of keep an eye on that and perhaps write more about that at some point um, and then um, you know and and the politics of sport in the United States also continue to to fascinate me as well I, I have a, a student of mine Andrew Wenger who's now a player at MLS in MLS and the impact of Montreal and sort of through him and he's written some things for the blog. Um, you know, gotten interested in like the Quebec soccer scene. And so there's, there's always more to be discovered, I think, um, with soccer. So if, you know, I think in this case, the book was because was basically like my own large therapy session for, for dealing with the headbutt. And you had to have, a, I had to kind of drive, like I had to get that out. And, you know, but I'm, I'm sure at some point something else will happen like that, where I feel like uh, the need to write another 250 pages. Of <laughs> so. You've been listening to an interview with Laurent Dubois about his book, Soccer Empire, The World Cup, and the Future of France, published in 2011 by the University of California Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from pop music to politics. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.